Isaiah chapter 1, and we'll commence our reading there at the first verse. Hear once again the word of the living God. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They are gone away, backward. As far as the reading of God's word, may we know his blessing under it this evening. Before we come to our text, I want us to begin with a general remark, perhaps a remark that normally we would expect to conclude with. I want you to note, friend, that what you have here before us is the word of God. But I also want you to remember, friend, that as the word of God was given to the church underage and to the church in the new covenant, principally, God made his will known through preaching. His inspired prophets and apostles were preachers. And the text that we take up this evening largely is, I believe, rightfully understood to be a book of sermons. The inscripturated preaching of God's extraordinary prophet. But friend, as we take up this text, I think it's important for us to remember how this preaching came to Israel under old. Under the old covenant, it came... Yes, at times with extraordinary signs and wonders. One can look at the prophet who went and preached against the altar of Jeroboam I and see a king, his hand made leprous. One could follow the ministries of Elijah and Elisha and see incredible, extraordinary signs confirming their calling. And, and of course, Moses, his ministry was extraordinarily marked with confirmations of the greatest and most striking character. But friend, what is so staggering is that by and large, the preaching of the prophets under the old covenant was simply preaching. Without those extraordinary tokens, it was but the proclamation of God's word. What you find, friend, as you read throughout the Old Testament is that by and large, it was received. It was received simply as the opinion of men. By and large, the congregations that sat under the word of God heard it and quickly discountenanced it. My friend, what you and I are to remember as we come before this text this evening is that this is the word of God. God has been pleased, the one who holds all things by the word of his power, who holds the cosmos in his hands has been pleased to make known to us in his word, his will, 
and what many didn't realize under the ministry of the prophets and what many fail to realize under the sound of God's word today is that this is the word of God and you and I are accountable for how we hear it. On those questions, Isaiah is absolutely clear. This first verse begins by saying that that which we have in front of you is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. And I just draw your attention to the fact that this is, first of all, in the singular. This is a vision. And what you recognize immediately is that this encompasses, this statement encompasses the entirety of his prophecy. The prophet is telling you, first of all, that this is one book. This is not to be divided among several authors, as some of the higher critics have done so. This is a singular vision. And it's a vision not because necessarily the prophet receives all that he does, as he does in Isaiah 6, for instance, through a literal vision. The word here is used to communicate the idea that these things came to Isaiah from on high. In other words, friend, what you and I have here is the extraordinary revelation of God. And Isaiah is very clear to begin this way, to make us mindful that, that however illustrious a man such as Isaiah might have been, what you and I are confronted with is that which is from God and God alone. Isaiah was his instrument, but it was God who was the author. And friend, That description does, as I've already said, apply to the entirety of this book. And as you look at this first chapter, you'll notice that the entirety of the book really is in view. Uh, We didn't have time to read all of it, but from verses 2 down to 24, you'll notice that the themes that are set before us there are the very themes that the the prophet is preoccupied with from chapters 2 to 39. And then from chapter, from verse 25, rather, to the end of the first chapter, you'll find that the themes that he there gives to us are the very themes that really occupy chapters 40 to 66 of the prophecy. And so this first chapter is really a digest, a theological digest of the entirety of the book. And over all of that, over all of that we are to be clear, first of all, this is a single book. The single vision given to a single man, Isaiah the son of Amos. And in that text, this first chapter, you and I are given something of a theological digest of all that is to follow. Now, our text this evening, just the first four verses, falls in something of a continued or sustained indictment. In verses 2 to 4, that indictment that God brings through his prophet to Judah is an indictment that is largely concerning her blessings. It's an indictment that God draws forth from her time of plenty. But then as you look at verses 5 to 9, you find that that indictment continues, but now his focus is very much on her time of chastening. He looks at her time of wealth, and he looks at her time of weakness. And he draws his case against the church underage from both. Our text this evening, again, the first four verses here, you'll notice that he begins this indictment by appealing to nature. And in fact, he does so twice. This is an indictment, an arraignment, as it were, from from the judge of all the earth in which he He summons Judah to hear. 
And while he does so, he orders even the irrational creatures to be something of his witnesses. From a literary perspective, friend, this is one of the most elegant, elegant compositions in all of history. It is perhaps one of the most beautiful proems you and I could ever find. But from a theological perspective, friend, this introduction, as poetic and beautiful as it is, also penetrates, it penetrates the heart. And it reveals to us how deep God's cause with his people really went. As we'll see in the time to come, these these verses, verses 2 to 4, set before Judah this simple truth. That sins against mercies are grossly aggravated and unnatural. Sins against mercies are grossly aggravated and unnatural. It's a striking way for this prophecy to begin. But I trust that as we work through this text briefly this evening, we'll see that that not only is, is this altogether appropriate for Isaiah's context, it's precisely what you and I need to hear. As you look at this text, you'll notice that there are really three components. You'll notice, first of all, the indictment itself, or the prosecution that the Lord brings, followed by his plaintiffs, those whom God calls as his witnesses. And then finally, you see something as well in verse 4 of the punishment that is to come. So take, first of all, the prosecution itself. And there you have it given to us really directly in the second verse, where the Lord says there, I have nourished and brought up children. Now he uses there two words, nourished and brought up, that you and I might think are largely synonymous, but they aren't. They aren't. The first word here translated nourish really has the idea behind making, or in the case that here is in view, adopting. God has adopted Judah. He has made her, one of his own. Whereas the second word, brought up, has behind it the idea of of one being reared, nourished, cherished. In other words, what you have here is the Lord is saying of his people that, that he has not only made them his children, but he has also cherished, nourished them. And friend, you see this throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, Thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. And then look at Ezekiel 16. I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased and waxen great. The word wax and great, the words wax and great, there are the same words here that are translated brought up. And thou art come to excellent ornaments. And, and so what are the prophets saying? They're saying that, that God wonderfully made the seed of Abraham his people. He called forth the church. He made, adopted them as his own. And then, friends, you look throughout her history, up to this point you re, you'll recognize That here the Lord is saying, through her history you are to see his nourishing grace. 
He is cherishing her. Cherishing her, rather. And what you find here, friend, especially, not only through the days of Moses when he brought her out of the furnace of affliction, but in the days of Uzziah. The very days to it in which the prophet is ministering here. How had he, how had he nurtured her? How had he brought her out from under being a vassal kingdom to, to greater states, even to the northern tribes, and brought her into a high, spacious place, a place that was previously unheard of except for the days of Solomon? He not only made her a people, but, but he nourished her and cherished her. And then he says this, they have rebelled against me. The word there for rebelled, the root of it, is the idea of despised. Friend, what you have here is the language of paternity, of loving fatherhood, contrasted with the most gross wickedness. So in verse 4, he calls, he calls them simply a sinful nation, laden with iniquity. And the idea there is that they are not contrite. It's not that they are they're burdened with a sense of the guilt of their sins. The idea is they're heavy with guilt in the legal sense. That is, they are loaded with sins. And as we'll see, friend, though they are so, they're unfeeling. And so it concludes there with these words They have forsaken the Lord, they have gone away backward. And all of that language, friend, it should drive us to that image of a loving father's embrace being resisted by an adopted child. That's the language that's employed here. Those are the images that the prophet conjures. They are the ones who are alienating themselves from the Lord who has always manifested a loving paternity over them. And so, friend, in this prosecution, what the Lord does is He contrasts His merciful dealings with them, with their sin. And all of this stands to prove that sin, after special blessings, incurs special guilt. Sin, after special blessings, incurs special guilt. Now, as you look at this text, you and I are to remember, friend, that all of the language that's deployed here, all of this is supposed to produce in us shock. It should produce in us horror. The imagery of, of, a, of a house, as it were, where, where only the child has known a father's love and tender care, only to reciprocate that with the, the most gross rebellion. All of that, friend, is supposed to supposed to surprise us, to lead us to staggering. And why so? Well, friend, because of the fact that the one whom they are rebelling against has been so merciful. I want us to consider that just very briefly. I want us to look, first of all, at the blessings that the prophet has in view here. And those temporal blessings that were known in Uzziah's day, uh, as we saw last Lord's Day evening, such as wealth, prosperity, political stability, all of those things belong to what we refer rightfully to common grace. Those things belong even to the reprobate, as God is gracious and merciful. 
But friend, I want you to notice that that's not how. That is not how Israel is described here. She's not described as one who has received the common benevolence of God. No, she's received these things specially. And friend, what you and I are to remember is, first of all, with regard to temporal blessings, God's people may receive things that in their, themselves substantially are the same that the reprobate might receive from the hand of God. In other words, they might receive common grace. But in one sense, friend, you and I are to remember that the believer, that, that is the people of God, and even the visible church of God, they don't receive common grace in terms of the rise and in terms of the divine intention of those temporal mercies. I think this is a, the, a theological truth that is often overlooked. Even the temporal mercies that belong to the church of God, even those things like the rain and its season, and those things come from a rise and intention in God that is not so with the reprobate, not so with those who are not among the church. And friend, what you find here is that the prophet describes all of those dealings as the Lord's cherishing Israel, cherishing Judah. Do you think of your temporal blessings that way, friend? Do you think of the temporal goods that you have, recognizing that that while you partake substantially of the same kinds of things that the reprobate might, From God's intention, they come to you specially. In one sense, friend, the the, the Christian, he shouldn't drink a cup of tea the same way the unbeliever might. The most minuscule blessing, the most temporal of mercies that he knows. As this text describes it, it is part of God's cherishing his church. Do you receive temporal blessings that way? But of course, friend, we must go further because that's not the only way in which God cherished his own. Principally, friend, he cherished her with his ordinances. He beautified her with those spiritual mercies and blessings. He deposited his word to her. And friend, we need to remember that that is a peculiar, a special blessing that in its substance belongs only to the church of God. Friend, if that's so, if all of that belongs to the cherishing that God exercises over his church, how great is her guilt in recoiling? He supplied everything for her from her wealth to the ordinances of the gospel. And yet, he says, they have rebelled against me. My friend, what you recognize here is that Israel, Judah rather, is described as a child who has rebelled, not from an attacker, not from a great avenger, but from the embrace of a loving father. That's how this prophecy begins. It begins with a language of a family that's been alienated through the sins of a rebellious child who has received so much and special privileges. 
And friend, the sins of God's people are all to be found in this description. All within the church may be so described as recoiling from a God who has bestowed special privileges, cherished her in special ways, and from that loving embrace they've recoiled. My friend, you may be thinking to yourself, how heinous must this generation have been? How notoriously wicked must the church at this time have fallen into sin. What you recognize, friend, is that that if we're thinking that way, we're thinking entirely wrongheadedly. You remember that under the days of Uzziah, the character of the church was, in the words of Abijah, they would say, as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. And the priests which minister unto the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites wait upon their business. In other words, friend, this is a reformed church. And I mean that in in a literal sense. In Uzziah's day, though, though error was tolerated, so much that was good was still preserved. It was a traditional piety that had all of the external accoutrements. It looked the part. And God says, notwithstanding all of that, you've rebelled against me. As you've approached me in worship, howsoever externally pure, you have alienated yourself from my embrace. You have rebelled against me. These were a people who had the form of godliness but lacked its power. And that, friend, is the prosecution that God brings against this generation. I want you to notice briefly, friend, the plaintiffs. Secondly, whom the Lord calls to stand. He says, hear, O heaven, and give ear, O earth. It's a striking, a striking beginning. And it certainly takes us back to various places throughout the Old Testament. To Moses, for instance. He says, give ear, O ye heavens, hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. And then continuing in Deuteronomy 32, he says, They, the church, have corrupted themselves. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? And what you recognize, friend, is that in Deuteronomy 32, you have very much the same themes that we encounter in Isaiah 1, verses 2 to 4. What is all of this about? Well, friend, to understand this, you need to come down to verse 3. Where there the prophet summons to our attention the ox and the ass. The ox knows his owner, the ass his master's crib. And so, friend, what you have here is something of a progression. First of all, God calls the inanimate... The inanimate, the irrational creature, heavens and earth. Then he calls the animate, brute beasts, ox and ass, to serve his purpose. And what does all of this reinforce? Why such a summons and why such an illustration? Friend, ultimately, he is not appealing to the judgment of these lesser creatures. Ultimately, friend, he's addressing that 
that, in, that innate knowledge that is left in the image of God in fallen men. He appeals to the witness of nature. And friend, what this teaches us here is that nature's light shows the guilt of such sin. This is crucial, and we simply don't have time this evening to descend further into these themes. But what Isaiah is doing here as the inspired prophet is the very self-same thing that, that Paul calls to witness in Romans 1 and Romans 2. And that is that sin, rightfully understood, is so utterly contrary to nature. That, that as you look at, at this particular instance where you have a child rebelling against a loving father, we would naturally recoil if we saw that literally played out in front of us. And then whenever he summons this idea that, that the ox renders its owner greater obedience than the people of God render to the Lord, or that the ass knows how it is supposed to receive nourishment when Israel seems to re re refuse all of God's goodness in preference to her idols and false religion. That all of these things conspire, as it were, to undergird God's case. Friend, this is so very crucial. Because what it says about your sin and what it says about mine is this, that it's ultimately unnatural. We have a tendency to think about sin as though it were, were natural. It is common, but it's not natural. It's not normal. And here you find God calling attention to that very fact. You see, when the people of God especially, when they rebel against the Lord, the Lord describes them not as beasts, but as worse than beasts. It's like the sun, it's like a sun that won't shine. They're like songbirds that can't sing, like fire that produces no heat. God summons all of the lesser creatures to obedience. Calls to the stars, stand there, and so they stand. The mountains rise, and so they stand where commanded. To the waters, he says, thus far and no further, and they obey. To man, he gives a law. To the church, he gives his word. And he says, and they have rebelled against me. These are the plaintiffs a natural witness against man's sin. But that brings us as we close to our third and our final point this evening. And that is the punishment that the prophet pronounces here in the fourth verse. That fourth verse, you notice, begins with the words, Ah, sinful nation. And it is an exclamation. We are to recognize that. But, but I want you to notice, friend, that in the original, that exclamation is not alas. And it's not woe. It's an exclamation, not of indignation, not of avenging justice, but of lament. Throughout the entirety of God's word, this exclamation is attached to weeping. And that's rather staggering, isn't it? As we leave verses 2 and 3, we expect 
and friend, it stands to reason, doesn't it, that we should expect that at this point God has settled his case. That at this point Judah is left without excuse. And so when he calls her sinful nation, it's the decree of divine justice and it is perfectly spoken with indignation. But in the fourth verse, that's not what we find. It's lament. My friend, it's important for me to tell you that that even as we see that it's the prophet Isaiah that speaks here, he speaks here as the inspired prophet. And it's right, as commentators have, have noted, that you and I should not draw too harsh a distinction between the one speaking in verse 3 and the one speaking in verse 4. And why is that? Well, theologically, friend, all I need to remind you is that not only, was the, not only were the prophets' preachings inspired, but so were their laments. Their breathings out of condemnation, as well as their weeping, was, as Peter tells us, from the Spirit of Christ. This is how God would have his prophet conduct himself as he serves the Lord in this way. The lament, in other words, friend here, does not go beyond the prophet's remit. It's part of it. And what are you and I supposed to see there? Well, if you just come down another line, he says here that that they have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. What's striking about that statement is, is that after this lamented first line, you go to the next line where he says that they have provoked him. You recognize, friend, that in this moment, the Lord describes himself as one that is passive. The Lord doesn't stir himself to anger. They are the ones, as it were, drawing forth God's wrath, extracting it, as it were, from him. That's the kind of language that the prophet uses here. And so how is this fourth verse supposed to be read? Friend, just briefly, what you and I are supposed to see here is the very self-same kind of thing that you see in the Gospels as Christ weeps over a Jerusalem who still refused him, who still continued in her rebellion. Isaiah spoke by the Spirit of Christ, Peter tells us. And he does so even even as he laments her rebellion and her forthcoming punishment. Such sins, this text teaches us, provoke the removal of mercy. They provoke it. In Lamentations 3, 33, you find the prophet saying thus, he says, he that is the Lord doth not afflict willingly. Literally translated, the idea is heartily. He doth not afflict willingly nor grieve the son of the children of men. The sense is that they have provoked the Lord to this. And what this reiterates is the very same thing that we've meditated now on for the past month. And that is that the Lord loves mercy. He has a complacent love for the work of saving sinners. But when he comes to describe the work of his justice, though he delights in justice as a vindication of his own righteousness, what you find, friend, is that his complacent love is for mercy. 
Friend, what we see in this text is that self-same truth. He laments through his prophet over her rebellion. And then he describes himself as one provoked to wrath. And that which is to come, friend, you recognize is the removal of the mercies abused. I direct your attention back if we had time to Hosea chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. In those two verses you find the Lord doing just that. Speaking as a near contemporary to Isaiah, Hosea promises that the very corn, wine, and oil that came from God, that they offered to Baal, the Lord says he would return to himself. And friend, that's precisely what you see here. What you see here is that those abused mercies will one day be returned to the Lord. He will remove them. But how should you see that in this fourth verse? What I find so striking, friend, is is that this is pronounced under lament when you and I would otherwise expect that it would be under the song of triumph over rebels. It's pronounced as a father lamenting the rebellion of his child. A father, if you will, by illustration, sending away a wayward child as the last act in hopes to reclaim the child. So the Lord withdraws his mercy from those who have abused it. As we close, friend, what you recognize here is that And we can't miss this, that this indictment comes to the visible church that looked the part. It came to the church in Uzziah's day that it was apparently reformed, had all of the right externals, it seemed, while it tolerated some others. Had Isaiah's congregation responded, one could only expect that they would have responded with incredulity. Surely this is not about us. But it was. And that shows us, friend, that the prophets come to us, the word of God as a whole comes to us, saying that this is our canon for piety and faithfulness. Not our own judgments, not even, friend, that which has been instantiated through tradition. This is our canon. And friend, when this is refused, through sins of omission and commission, the Lord describes this as a child who has abused mercies, as one who is wayward, against whom heaven and earth may stand as witness. Friend, here you have, quote-unquote, respectable sins clearly repudiated. And what's set before us here is a basic question. Friend, is this what guides our repentance this evening? Is this book that which we build our lives upon? If the answer, friend, is other than yes, you and I should quickly locate ourselves in the text. 
But what I want you to recognize, friend, as we leave, is again, the tone of the fourth verse is not just indignation, which we would rightfully expect. It's lament. And friend, all that that underscores for us, all that that should do for us is to drive us into repentance, shouldn't it? That the one who brings this case to his people, who urges them to press forward, to, to, to put aside the sins of omission and commission that, that are so commonly found among them, that the one who urges them to do so, urges them as a loving father, who laments the rebellion. Friend, it, it would be almost cliche, but so necessary for me just to remind you of what you have there in Luke 16. Because the same one whom Isaiah describes is the same one there given to us in the image of a father running after his wayward son to meet him. Friend, he calls us to repentance. But as this text reminds us, friend, how willing is he to receive the penitent? The call in this text then, friend, is to press on, not to be of a lukewarm or a Laodicean spirit, to make mercies spurs, as it were, to greater godliness and repentance, and to do so knowing that the one whom you serve, he delights in mercy, he's slow to anger, he's plenteous in mercy. Amen.